everybody. Welcome to Cinemusts, the podcast where we debate the must-see status of the films included in the book 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die, and listeners decide if they should be included on the list of essential cinema. I'm agitator-hating landlord Mike Emmel, and I'm very happy to welcome back my co-host for this episode. You all may know him as the host of several excellent podcasts, including Below Freezing and Rewind 2552. He is also the host of several past Cinemust episodes, such as Memento, Pulp Fiction, and In Bruges. He's the man who's in entire wardrobe consists of leopard print it is adam st john hello adam my old friend i'm i'm good yeah it's it's been a real doozy trying to uh to dress properly for spring with all of that leopard print but i'm 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 doing pretty good you're always on brand i'm committed to it i i have a self-conscious moment here did i say the the podcast right is it rewind 2552 or is it 5225 no no it, it is 2552 you're totally right I've been on the show and I all of a sudden forgot the name. How are things going on both those shows? Uh, uh, they're going great. Um, you know, on, on Below Freezing right now, we are sort of um, slowly working our way through the Underworld franchise, which um, I, I knew of by reputation and, and not by having seen them. Uh, we are halfway through. I, a short version is I'm not a fan, but please tune in to listen because we, um, oh, some of the tangents we go on are just, uh, they're beautiful. My, my wife, Melissa, who I do it with, um, is just the queen of the wild card. I never know what she's going to say. And it always makes for, for entertaining conversation. And then, uh, yeah, Rewind 2552. Uh, it's a very much a nostalgic based podcast where we go back 25 years and we go week by week in the box office and talk about whatever was the newest and highest grossing film. Um, you were on very recently as of the day of this recording when we talked about Donnie Brasco. Um, and uh, I, I, it's, a, it's great because it's been um, not only has it been like a nostalgic train, but it's also been a chance to see some of these movies that totally slip by that I, I was unaware of. And more than anything, it's been great to connect with so many people that I haven't uh, talked to in a long time. Um, I'm not necessarily going after, you know, I, you know, quote unquote fil- film snobs like us. Um, I getting just anybody who, you know, is into pop culture and into certain kind of movies. And it's, it's been such a, a blast to, uh, to get to talk about uh, a very, a very near and dear time in my life when I was sort of budding into the world of film. Yeah, I I enjoyed being on the show, and I mean, to sound off on those things, you said first time watch for Donnie Brasco for me, so I got introduced to a good piece of pop culture, but I had fun talking about the uh, the song that was number one on the charts and stuff like that, and taking myself back to my eight-year-old persona, and uh, living in a reality that wasn't obsessed with The Lost World Jurassic Park was a real boost for me, so I, I had a great time. I think it's a great show that you're doing. With Below Freezing, um, which of the underworlds is the best? Okay, so we're only through th- three. We're through three of them. Um, and I mean, it has to be the, the first one, I, I would mm-hmm. say, is, is the best because the second one, uh, they, it's like they're trying to, to shoehorn in a, a plot that I don't think exists. And then the third one is a prequel, um, which might, might be better than the first, uh, if, if for no other reason than it's shorter. But you also don't have Kate Beckinsale. So it's, you know, it, there's... Right now, right now, it's uh, it's the first one, but that's also, I'll be honest, that's not saying much. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. It's been a long time since I visited the Underworlds, but I, my hat is off to you for for going through them so close together as well. So I hope you and Melissa are having a great time. And 
it's a blast to at least listen through it for anybody who's interested in that or rewind 2552 where can we find you guys we're, you know we're on twitter and instagram and, and on facebook but i you know i think uh you know the world the the world of film twitter being what it is we're most most active on twitter and and melissa tends to run the uh the instagram for below freezing but but basically if you're seeing any twitter engagement it's it's me and uh and that's that's primarily where we're we're posting stuff or, or throwing stuff out there excellent so i highly recommend everybody check it out we're talking essential movies on cinema so you get a bit of the polar opposite end of the spectrum with the the bad movies and below freezing and then you get the nice middle ground i thought donnie brasco is a pretty good movie and uh, i have some soft spots in my heart for some of those other ones you've covered like dante's peak and the relic um not to say you don't hit bottom of the barrel with things like uh beverly hills ninja man that was a that was a movie (laughs) oh yeah it was It, it certainly was i mean so so they say (laughs) <laughs> uh, thematically linked to tonight's movie I'm sure we could make a case for it so let's get rolling into it Adam I am super stoked to have you back man great to have you welcome back and everybody who's listening welcome back to you too we know it's been a while since we dropped an episode but we're really glad to have you here because we have two words for you just two words essential cinema to determine if tonight's film is going to earn a place on the list of essential movies, we are leaving it up to all of you to cast your votes on the polls we're putting out on our various social media pages. So if you are not already doing so, please make sure you're following us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. You can find us on any of them simply by searching for Cinemusts. That way you can cast your vote on the musty status of tonight's movie this Friday. And while you're all making sure you're following us on whichever of those platforms you prefer, I'm going to give you the rundown of how you're going to cast your vote. Each movie we discuss here on Cinemus gets pushed gets put into one of three categories. There are our namesakes, the Cinemusts. These are your top tier movies. You recommend absolutely everybody see at some point in their lifetime. You recommend everybody see them. In the middle tier are the Cine Trusts, which are movies that are pretty good. There's a lot going for them, but you do not recommend them to absolutely everybody. And at the bottom tier are the Cinebus, which are movies that might be bad, might be pretty good, but for whatever reason, you don't recommend them to anybody. There are just better ways people can spend their time. So tonight, Adam and I are going to pick a movie, put it into one of those three categories, have our say, but ultimately you are the ones who will decide if it makes the list of essential movies. And Adam, the, the episode's been a long time brewing. We've kind of been making jokes that with scheduling snafus and last minute cancellations and technical difficulties that even now threaten to derail us, the universe seems to not want this episode to happen, but we are going to make it happen by gumption. And we might as well get started by revealing the title. I, I reached out to you and asked, can I siphon off some of your talent? What movie do you want to talk about? And the film you chose, Adam, is none other than... The Graduate, uh, directed by Mike Nichols, uh, starring Dustin Hoffman, and Bancroft, and Catherine Ross, to name a few. Yeah, just to name a few. What made you pick this one? Well, I, you know, I feel like we had a pretty good discussion about it. Um, you know, we, you kind of, you threw out some things like, you know, let's, you know, one, one, uh, we haven't talked about an older movie because I definitely have been more in the the nineties and the aughts when I've been on the show. And then we were thinking, well, let's maybe do something older. And then you also were like, well, maybe we could do something, um, sort of as a, as a tribute to our, our friend Ian. And, uh, I had this list of movies that I I uh I knew were were he he was particularly fond of and uh, I think this this was the earliest one on that list that I had and it just sort of made sense too 
and 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 a movie that I was um not unfamiliar with, but I'd I'd only ever seen once before, and it felt like a good time to do it because I've also I I uh, as 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 maybe uh, previous listeners will know, you know, we used to do a podcast also based on the book of a thousand one movies you must see before you die, and so I haven't been in this world. I mean, I've certainly been watching good movies, but I haven't been in a let's pop in the criterion, let's dive down the rabbit hole of special features and. And, and listen to commentary tracks and, and really think about a movie hyper-analytically, which is not something I've done, quite honestly, in, in a long time. So there was also a, a, a nice bonus for me to kind of dust off the old thinking cap and, and really put my, my two cents out there. Oh, the pressure is on. I gotta, I gotta really bring it for this. No, I'm, I'm excited. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad. Again, my, my goal, like you said, is to, to, to push you and me back further in time with each film conversation we have, and, you know, just spitballing here with, you, with your underworld stuff below freezing. There, there might come a time we can get you back to the 1940s and we can talk the Wolfman. Maybe someday. For tonight, we're talking about The Graduate, a movie surprisingly almost no werewolves. Um. I'm excited, nervous. This is another one of those ones that there's, there's a short list out there. You and other rotating co-hosts know there's a short list of movies out there that I'm like, I'm not, it's not that I'm going to say no to you if you pitch it, but just know that you're scaring the hell out of me and putting the pressure on in the graduate was, is definitely on that list. So we're booting another one off and we're here, we're doing it. I am very excited. So let's get rolling into it. For anybody who is new to the show, Adam and I are going to take a couple minutes to be completely spoiler free. So if you've never seen the graduate, hang with us for a couple minutes. We're going to give you a quick plot summary. I'm going to tell you where you can find the movie if you're interested in watching it, and we are going to vote it into one of the three categories I explained, a cinemust, a cinetrust, or cinebust, and each of us has to provide three reasons why we voted into the category we do. Once we've laid all that out, we'll issue a spoiler warning so we can talk a little more in depth, backing those points up. But again, if you haven't seen the movie, hang with us for a couple minutes while we uh, give the pitch here. So Adam, pitch it back to you. It's 1967, The Graduate. Uh, I don't think it's an overreach to say it's an iconic movie, but in case nobody has heard of The Graduate, what in a nutshell is it about? Benjamin Braddock has graduated from college, but is unsure of what to do next. In a haze of malaise and anxiety, he unexpectedly becomes entangled with Mrs. Robinson, the wife of his dad's business partner. As the summer draws to a close, Ben's sights turn to a different Robinson, their daughter Elaine, and the thought of losing her is too much to bear. However, in the end, will Ben find what he's looking for, or will he continue to be, quote, concerned about his future? Beautiful, and I love the use of the haze of malaise. That was a good rhyme that worked into a good plot summary. Thank you. I was proud of that. <laughs> you should be. That was great. And um, yeah, all right. So, Adam, you said you'd only seen this movie once before. So I, I like this. I like when people kind of come to a, an iconic movie fairly fresh. It always gets me excited to talk about beloved movies with people who don't necessarily have them on a pedestal. I think it gives us fresh eyes. I think it actually brings something to a critical conversation that you sometimes miss when it's just a gush fest of two people who have seen the movie 30 times and they have it all memorized. So I am very curious here. Your thoughts on The Graduate. Is it a cinemust, a cinetrust, or a cinebust? So, you know, after now having watched this film a second and third time, um, while I, I would not say that it's necessarily my favorite, there is, there is no way on this earth that I could vote for this movie in any other way than cinema must. Okay. Essential, absolute must see. Uh, with that, can you give me your three main reasons that pushed you into that category? 
Uh, yeah, yes, I can. Um, and uh, one of them is very vague that I can't wait to break down. Uh, but the first one is just the iconicness of this film. It has been parodied up and down, but this movie is parodied because of how iconic it is. So the sheer iconic nature of the film is my first reason. My second reason um, uh, that I, I wrote down here is the beautiful blend of the theatrical and film techniques merging, which I think play into Nichols' strength as a collaborator. And my third reason is the sheer uni universality of the story. Excellent. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm excited to, to get into a lot of those because I'm going to mimic a lot of them. I, too, am going to join you with the Cinemust vote here. I do think absolutely everybody should see The Graduate. Um, not a controversial opinion to take, although I do have to say I, I'm a little more steeped in this movie than you. I, I check this out about every couple of years, and I, I feel like the first time I caught it, I was definitely target audience right age and i have been uh, on a roller coaster ride with this movie ever since i catch it on big ups and downs every time i revisit it sometimes i'm like this absolutely earns that praise of being one of the best movies ever made and then next time i watch it i'm on a downswing and i really think it's overrated um i'm back on an upswing with this i thoroughly enjoyed the graduate again on this uh, walkthrough so even the things that i'm going to complain about i am going to spin in a positive light the three main reasons I'm going to say I recommend everybody see The Graduate is one, I think this is the definitive cinematic study of a truly universal dilemma, a problem I think that basically everybody across the world deals with, and that is this question of what do I do with my future? I think it's a great breakdown of that. Second reason for me, it is one of the comedy films, and I'm accentuating films as opposed to movies, and that has to do with the way it's shot and directed. We'll get into more of that later. Third reason, I'm gonna put a I'm gonna put a positive spin on one of my problems with the movie. I, the movie has very problematic elements for me, especially in its third act. My third reason I still recommend the movie to everybody is even those problematic elements. They serve as this study in how the progressive rebellion of the past is inevitably gonna transform into outdated traditions. I'm really excited to have a conversation with you with how the movie dates, especially since it's a movie that at the time is so geared toward young people and late 60s rebelliousness and revolutionary thinking. There's a lot to dive into there that uh, we can't really get into without spoilers. So those are my three reasons why I wholesale recommend everybody see The Graduate no matter what. If you are sold and you want to know where to find it, at the time of this recording, we're at the start of March here. If you're a Prime an Amazon Prime subscriber, you get it for free. It is on Prime Video with your subscription. But if you're not on that train, for four bucks, you can get this from any of your standard streaming services, your YouTube, Apple TV, Apple Movies, Voodoo, all that stuff. Four bucks gets you what I would consider a pretty great movie night and one that I'm saying at this point of the curve, I am jumping on is probably deserving of its iconic status to piggyback off your first reason there. So, yeah. We're on. We're 100. percent We recommend the movie to everybody. Adam, before we start diving into spoilers, backing all this stuff up, is there anything spoiler-free you want to mention or say to pitch the movie to anybody who's unfamiliar, maybe even hasn't seen in a while? Um, you know, I it's so funny because I think that to an, like an up-and-coming generation of of people wanting to get into film, 
I, I really wonder where Dustin Hoffman ranks in terms of like, you know, I don't, I don't think he gets mentioned in the same breath necessarily as like a Pacino or a De Niro or even like a, a Hackman, which is funny enough that we can talk about him. But I, uh, but uh, you know, I, I really appreciate his presence in this movie. And, and if you, I mean, this is his first film. And if you, I think when you can track a career back to such an iconic start, I mean, this is, I mean, it's amazing how this is how you break into the world. Um, I, I just, I think you've got a really interesting Dustin Hoffman performance at the center of this movie. Yeah. I'll, I'll, right along on that because i i think yes absolutely it's it's one of the all-time great debuts but also i think if we're going to talk performances i i think the movie's flush with them and i i think the spoiler section is going to be just absolutely riddled with going character to character and talking about uh what's working and what isn't and for my money i think a whole lot more is going to be working than isn't i agree cool i'm excited to dive into it so um We've set our piece in terms of not spoiling the movie, so if you are interested in The Graduate, don't want it ruined for you, uh, Adam and I say go for it. Go check it out on any of the streaming services I mentioned. It's an hour, 40 minutes, well worth your time. And then come on back to the episode after that and uh, hash it out with us as we debate on whether these six reasons are worthy are worthy criteria to get this movie on the list of essential cinema. So go ahead and pause if you haven't seen the movie, because from here on out, we're talking spoilers for The Graduate. I've had this feeling ever since I've graduated. This kind of compulsion that I have to be rude all the time. You know what I mean? Yes, I do. It's like I've been playing some kind of game, but the rules don't make any sense to me. They're being made up by all the wrong people. No. I mean, no one makes them up. They seem to have made themselves up. Hey, I wonder if I can request you to turn that down a little. All right, Adam, as, as I mentioned, you, you picked an all-timer here, and I'm, I'm pretty stoked for it, but when, you, when we talk all-timers, you even called it out. One of your reasons you recommend The Graduate to everybody is the sheer iconicness of it, and I think iconicness is as great a place to start in a conversation as any, so let's dive into it. What, what about this movie is iconic? What makes it a third of the reason you recommend absolutely everybody see it? So I, I, I put a, as I'm looking at my, my little spreadsheet here, I, I put a, I put four reasons. I put four things down. Um, and I think as, as much as we're talking about a, a movie and a, a memorable one, it would be a disservice to the movie if we didn't go to the music and if we didn't go to Simon and Garfunkel. I, I think specifically you've got Hello Darkness, which is played uh, a few times throughout the movie. Um, Interestingly, too, because I, I definitely tracked a few times that they play it. Um, and Mrs. Mrs. Robinson as well. I mean, which I know they changed. There's a whole story about that wasn't even the name of the song, Mrs. Roosevelt, but then it happened to work out. That's, that's perfect. Um, but like this movie, I think, is elevated a notch because of this music at this time. Yeah, and it's so interesting to me because one of the things we're going to talk about a lot is, you know, the movie's place both in its time and outlasting it because it's such, to, in my mind at least, it's such a 60s movie. It's, it's potentially the 60s movie, which is pretty interesting because our last episode on Chinatown, one of my reasons for that was like, it's like the 70s movie. But, but at the same time, there's so much about it that 
also I feel doesn't completely ground it there that gives it a sort of timelessness. But Simon and Garfunkel like definitely plants it there. And I'm always interested to hear from people if these songs date the movie for the worse, if it kind of keeps it from having a new life 50 years on down the road. I, I guess one way I'll phrase that question to you is to go back to the sound of silence that's played. Uh, is it three or four times throughout the movie? So, okay. I, I think it's three. If it, if there's four, I missed one in the middle, but I, I tracked it at three and, and I, and whether it was intentional or not, I think there's a reason for each time that it, it plays, but um, I, I think that it's three. I do too. So here's my question. Is it overplayed? No, no. And in fact, uh, so the, the, when the second time it comes up, it feels like it's a little, it might be a little soon for it to come back up again. Um, but then it, it doesn't kick back in until the end. We don't have to jump to that yet. But uh, in fact, the third time that it kicks in, if, if, the, if the final images isn't telling you enough of the story mm-hmm. anyway, the fact that that song is playing over it, it's like, it's like, okay, in case you weren't paying attention, here's, an, here's another extra thing to push you in the direction that we're trying to get you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I tend to agree. I, I, think, I don't think it's overplayed. And one is because I'm just a gigantic fan of the song. Like, so much so I like, learned how to play it on the guitar after watching the movie because it was stuck in my head so much. I was like, I have to learn how to play this to get it out of here. But the, um, just the, the melancholy mood it strikes, and I feel that the three places that it is put come at these moments where that is the prevailing emotion. I think the lyrics match the message of the movie and the character very well. Um, I think it works all as a piece. So I've never had a problem with the fact that they're using the same song three times in one movie, which is a feat because I can't really think of too many other movies that will play the same song three or more times. And that uh, actually works. Yeah. I mean, I think the only thing that comes to my, well, I mean, this probably tells you more about the kind of movies I like, but I think, I think I'm shipping up to Boston plays more than once in The Departed. I think it only happens twice. Okay, I, I just know that they play. I, they definitely play more than once. I, I know what you mean, though. It does feel like that song is constantly playing. <laughs> but I, I, I'm a recent watch on that, so I think that was only twice. But yeah, I, I agreed. Like the Simon and Garfunkel music makes the movie, and it's, it's always so... Heartwarming is the only word I can come up for it when you see like... Um, retrospectives on it or anything and you'll always have like the Simon and Garfunkel songs playing over the clips and it's it's like a yearbook video it's just like this piece of comfort food from a bygone era every time I see something like that playing well and then and it's it's important too because if you listen to it, 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 any Nichols talk about this movie at all you know he mentions really not knowing how to what to do with the second act basically when from when he goes up to to Berkeley to win her back and he i think he basically credits the simon and garfunkel music playing over that lovely drive up to berkeley basically saving that part because he was like i'm not even totally sure what, what this part of the movie is going to be so i mean not that nichols wouldn't give credit where credit was due but i mean he definitely lifts up simon and garfunkel to sort of saving that chunk of the movie yeah absolutely and i it was a great marketing strategy for them as well to have like that soundtrack going out with the movie because it's just another piece of pop culture that young audiences can grasp onto not only can get can they get the movie they can get the soundtrack too so that's so that's one element of the iconicness here you said that there were a couple more mrs robinson you're trying to seduce me i mean (laughs) and and the, the line and the shot under her leg i mean it's uh, you, you know, and I, I, I mean, that image probably went back even before 
I, I knew that The Graduate is a movie. I mean, I'm probably, I'm sure I've seen cartoons parody that, and I just wasn't even aware at, at a very young age. And then, and, and obviously one of the, the more misquoted lines, because everybody says, you know, you're trying to seduce me, Mrs. Robinson, which is obviously not the way that it's said. It's Mrs. Robinson, you're trying to seduce me. But anyways, mm-hmm. um, I mean, that is such, it's become one of those absolute cliche cinematic lines that's just, it's the it's you know part of our foundation in film culture that is just one of those lines that you know yeah and i'll i'll kind of run with this cuz i think a lot of things you're going to say are going to back up my point about this being like one of the comedy films as as opposed to movies and a big part of that is the way that it is shot that comedies are, typically they get the bad rap because they are not usually or traditionally concerned with being interesting from a cinematography point of view they're very like on the schedule the star is the jokes the timing there's no time to get like some good mise-en-scene going in most comedies and yet this is a movie that is replete with amazing shots like that and there's there's others i'll bring up along the way but like you said this it's not just you know this beautiful shot it's a shot that's tied to a joke and it's a joke that's perpetuated itself throughout pop culture and i kind of think what you just said is maybe a mark of great pop culture is that if people slightly get the line wrong to something that sounds a little snappier when they can say it out of context because i think something like play it again sam from casablanca is the same way like if if people can slightly misquote your thing that may be a sign that you've actually made it well and and so another another part of the iconicness is i and it's 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 a big chunk of the movie but basically um from when ben pulls into the gas station to find out where the church is and he gets the directions and the car runs out of gas and he has to run and he gets to the church and then into the, you know, banging on the, you know, Elaine and, you know, yeah. and, and basically running away. Um, and, and I'm, I'm sure you know where I'm going with this, but like, again, I, I, the first time I saw this movie was maybe about five or six years ago. And, uh, but a movie I saw when I was very young was Wayne's world two, which mm-hmm. utterly spoofs this moment. Uh, brilliantly um it's very very funny particularly when they replace the gas station attendant with charlton heston it's just moi it's just choice (laughs) comedy um but like when i when the first time i watched the graduate and we get to the part where he pulls into the gas station and i'm like wait a minute this is really familiar and then when it runs out of gas and he's running i was like oh my god where's the weird naked indian to give him water like they do in wayne's world too (laughs) and it like it it was it was a great moment um, not just because of how it was filmed, but just the recognition of, oh, I get it. This is, that's what they're spoofing. And again, I think, you know, it, it's, you know, I, I think you, you mock, you mock what you love, right? I think, I think um, to, to like, they're not making fun of it. I think they're, they're intentionally kind of poking at it because they realize the brilliance of it. And it's, it is brilliant. It's, it's a great sequence. And I'm, I'm sure we'll talk more about it later, but I mean, everything about how that goes is just iconic it's it's i i, I hate I, that word is so easy to throw around but it oh, yeah. really is it stood the test of time well, well again just to say okay yeah, it is a word that can get thrown around but like we're talking you know numbers t- think about like all this sheer accolades this thing like it what is it afi's top 100 movies list i think it has it now at 17 in the updated list it was number seven in the first list they did 1997 so it's always been considered 
top 20 American films. It's in the National Film Registry. It kickstarts Dustin Hoffman's career. There's, uh, I mean, I like how you point out, like, the ending is typically the one that is the most lampooned or paid homage to. Um, yeah, I was watching, I had some Simpsons reruns running in the background this week. There's an episode with this Grandpa Simpson-centric that is the ending of The Graduate to it. It's like, it's, it is all over the place. But it's it's not just the one sequence. I think you can go to any number of things and there are people who are pulling out the you're trying to seduce me shot there's people that can pull out the drifting through life montage the scuba suit thing um anything to do with the hotel and buck henry and calling mrs robinson um stalking elaine around berkeley like it's it's almost like one just truly unforgettable scene after the next and i i hesitated to say that just because again i'm i've I've seen the movie a good number of times. So I'm like, okay, is that just that I know it? I'm very familiar, but I think most people who love the movie can walk you through it for the most part, like scene by scene and probably won't miss too many big things and create gaps. I think there's a lot of memorable stuff going on. I totally agree with you. I totally agree. Thank you. Let's, let's keep rolling with this ball. Cause I, I might as well use this to keep making my point about it being like the comedy film. And it's my chance to get in some love for performances. It's it's sometimes weird to me to call a graduate a comedy because it's not where my brain initially goes when people say like, name me the funniest movies ever, name me like the all time great comedies. Yet every time I watch it, I'm always like, I don't remember it being this funny, and it is to me every time. And I wanted to get your read on this. Do do you consider this a hilarious movie? <laughs> no, I don't think that is hilarious. Um, but. I do, I do think that it is funny, but I, I also think that part of what I, I actually, I, I love a movie that is tonally all over the place. I, I don't mind that. And I, I think the reason why I like that is just because that's life. Life is Mm. never just one thing. And, um, you know, another person's, you know, another person's tragedy is somebody's com- what is it uh comedy is just tragedy plus timing right so mm-hmm. just because something is a, seems tragic to one person might be very funny to somebody else um and i think i think the the comedy shines the most when nichols gets to sort of revert back to his beginnings as a stage director of neil simon and let mm-hmm. let these scenes run long um and I think that there is a lot of a lot of what Nichols did behind the scenes is part of the reason why not not only the success of the film, but also the success of the comedy. Yeah, and, and I'll roll with that, too, because this is also one of the things to make this point about it being one of the comedy films. Mike Nichols directs the hell out of this movie. I'm very tempted to say that this would make my list of like the top 10 best directed movies because it is it's such a weird project to tackle and it's such a weird story like you said that goes all over the place yet it always feels like he's keeping a lid on things and and in a way that it doesn't always seem within his control but in a way that it seems like he's got management of the chaos that he's going to let some things play out because it's interesting to him yet he's not going to let it get away from him or take away from you know the central line that he's trying to follow um i think it's an amazingly directed movie and i think he earned that oscar in spades in a year that is tough this was the other thing i was going to talk to you about and um we've cinemas we've covered a lot of movies from 1967 and yet i always seem to forget what a banger of a year 
1967 is because we on the show we've talked about cool hand luke we've talked about the jungle book but we've also got in, in the best picture race with the graduate we've got bonnie and clyde we've got in the heat of the night we've got guess who's coming to dinner which i actually enjoy i i see why it gets a nomination i don't know that i would throw it in there but we also have things like even in cold blood is in there like it's it's a crazy good year and yet i i revisited a bunch of those movies this week to kind of try to steep myself in the year and what the the ethos was going on in the air at the time and nichols earns this oscar hands down as much as i like those other movies like he absolutely got the they gave the right award to the right person you know, it's funny. I uh, hopefully I, I, this will make sense. I, this is a very roundabout story, I guess. But uh, I, I uh, friends of ours over at Best Picture Cast, um, Kieran and Joey, uh, I was talking with them last night on their their Oscar special. And uh, when we got to the d- the director conversation, um, I you know I, I I basically was like, I, besides Jane Campion, I actually I'm not sure that anybody in this category really deserved the nom. And uh, somebody who i i just recently saw the worst person in the world and the way that i described it was that i didn't i don't i didn't see a director this year have more fun with the camera than Joachim Trier did with that movie and i want to rel- and i relate this back to the graduate because the graduate is mike nichols having fun being a director and using the camera in in like every way possible Right. Yeah. And it goes back to cinematography too, but there's, there's so much that he does with it, not only in just composing iconic images, but I, I'm always impressed with like the, the stillness of the movement that he can pull off. And even in times that's not even true. There's also a lot of sporadic movement, but you think, you think of the way that um, some dialogue scenes will play out. And one that for some reason always sticks in my head is in that initial seduction scene. It's right when Mr. Robinson comes home and we have the shot of Ben rushing down the stairs and he's in the background and he rushes into the foreground with the bar and the whole shot plays out, you know, back in the background, Mr. Robinson walks through the door and walks in and the camera's always moving out and coming back in on them and moving around. And Mrs. Robinson comes back down and the shot ends with Mr. Robinson taking Benjamin back to the door and it hangs on Mrs. Robinson in the foreground listening. And you get to just bask in the glory that is Anne Bancroft's performance. And I'm just like, that's an amazing way to shoot just this awkward scene that I think conventional wisdom would say, chop it up, make it sporadic because he's a nervous guy. The husband's just come home. Like, let's make it all wild and crazy. But he makes it work. But at the same time, you know, the the scene right before that where Mrs. Robinson has cornered him in Elaine's room in the buff and those quick cuts to various sections of her body, that is that like crazy kinetic sporadic cutting. And it's a hilarious joke to be cutting to Dustin Hoffman's ghoulish face like the the mugs that he's pulling but just like the perfect timing of like that quick one or two frame flash of like her breast to him going jesus christ is so freaking funny to me well and that goes and i think that also goes to show you the trust that he had with and i I definitely want to shout out by name uh cinematographer ben surtees and editor sam osteen who were like at like at the rehearsals all the time and they had they had months to rehearse this and you know, all those shots of, of um, Dustin Hoffman basically mugging the camera were just, they put him in the can in case they needed him. They, they, he, they were just asking him to make these ridiculous faces. That, that was all, and that's, that's having Sam Osteen in the room, 
knowing that they have it and knowing that they can put that in there. That's that's something that wasn't really planned that they were able to to put in later. And I think it's that it's that collaboration. It's that and I I I specified that, but Nichols knowing where his strengths were and allowing the other people around him to excel where they where they were the best. And I think allowing allowing that to happen is part of why this movie is as kind of chaotic as it is but also as as wonderful as it is absolutely and let's roll with that because this is still making a point of how this is just such a great well-made comedy film but the editing even in this i've i've seen it in multiple places referred to as bravura editing and again how many like comedies do we go to and say wow what an achieving or an editing master class and i think you know i think that especially comes from the uh the drifting through life montage in the middle which is not, not a choppy you know, there's not a lot of flashy editing there. It's it's a lot of single shots playing out, but it is this connection of events and doing the the thing movies do. It's compression of time and space and being playful with that and moving from the pool back to the taft, back to the cool pool, capping off with the amazing shot of Ben climbing out of the water onto the raft until the raft is Mrs. Robinson is is a great gut punch to end that. Um, but yeah. It, uh, things like I just mentioned the uh, the seduction scene, especially when she corners him in the room. I, I'm a big fan of the way those things flash up. Um, it's it's just amazingly well made, and even to you gave shout outs to the cinematographer. I always think of the section where Scarborough Fair is playing and Ben is going down to Berkeley, and we just have the big extra wide shot of the the car driving through the mountains and the forest, and I'm like. How many like comedies about, you know, a, a kid who sleeps with the the neighbor's wife and falls in love with the daughter are going to have like a shot that's this beautiful and haunting in it and still make it fit to not seem like, oh, you're trying to be like big and important. But it, it, it just kind of blows me away. And I'm glad you called that out, that there's tonal shifts all over the place here. And yet I very rarely call them out as hurting the movie and the things that kind of take me on this roller coaster i'd mentioned earlier are strictly narrative speaking i front to start the craft on display in the graduate is top notch from all contributors in my opinion and i don't know if there's any other of nichols collaborators that uh, you had in mind to call out and give some props to well, I it, it's it was those two specifically, but then I really loved um reading and I, you I think I don't know if you I think you mentioned this <laughs> while we were recording uh but uh when he was talking to his costume designer the note that he said was imagine Mrs. Robinson as a beast of the jungle and then mm. voila we get all of these leopard prints and it's right it's I mean it's it and it's so funny because it's it's contemporary for the time but I feel like there are certain parts of the movie that that get a chance to shine. I mean, I think the, the acting and the directing and the story, those are all there. Those are all front and center. And then if you dive deeper, you know, the editing and the cinematography choices are there as well. But like, it would be really easy to sort of just bypass a thing like that. But that is the kind of a, a, a note that a director can give a designer and be like, oh, great. And th that's it. That's all they need. And then they can run wild with it. And I, that was just a, a brilliant another brilliant sign of collaboration 
and I mean, even our production design team here, I mean, the, you know, the outside the Robinsons, I mean, they have kind of the jungle theme bar, but then you look out their sliding glass windows and it's just, it's jungle foliage. Like this, this theme permeates everywhere. The, <laughs> I, I always get a chuckle out of Elaine's room, this like shrine to Elaine with the giant portrait of her <laughs> in the centerpiece. And, and even the Braddock home that is so black and white and milk toast and just the dullest thing and and they're hanging this weird portrait of a sad clown in their stairwell it it is this bizarre choice yet it captures like this waspy hellhole that um I, I go back and forth on we we can dive in a little later to you know the downswing i can have with this movie i, I maybe prefer right now to keep the conversation riding high um we're, we're circling around performers and I'd love to talk performances here because I'm kicking myself that one of my reasons it's a must see is I didn't call any of these people out. So let me, to get it started, let's give you the loaded question. Favorite performance in the movie. Who is it? I think it's okay. I think it's Hoffman, but if I think if we had like one more scene with Anne Bancroft, it would be her. Okay, well, let's, let's, let's stick with Dustin Hoffman, because you, you call that in general impressions. This is, this is a debut performance. This is the first movie Dustin Hoffman does, and the stories abound, very famous. He is purposefully cast against type from Charles Webb's novel that in Charles Webb's book, Benjamin Braddock is this all-American, waspy, blonde kid. Robert Redford was the fantasy casting, and Mike Nichols says, I can't cast Robert Redford. He has no idea what it is to strike out with a girl. We need, we need somebody who knows this feeling, so they go with Dustin Hoffman, who's about as far from Robert Redford as you can get. Um, I don't, can you fathom like bringing it this hard for a debut performance? Like, Can you even wrap your head around how somebody can do that? Well, and, well uh, I mean... Yeah. I, uh, and I think if you listen to him talk about it, I mean, I love, I loved hearing him talk about how him and Gene Hackman and Robert Duvall were basically taking all these acting classes and they, the, each of them knew that like, we are not the conventional handsome leading man in Hollywood. So they moved to New York and they name drop like they name drop like Sandy Meisner and Harold Klerman and, and uh, Stella Adler and all of these like iconic theater teachers that people that I like I, I read about and teach about um and they moved to New York because on the stage they're more they were more um likely to get cast in things and so I while you know I do think that uh, if you look a certain way you can get a certain kind of role but I think you know Dustin Hoppin was making his bones and he was learning what it was to approach the craft and I think all of that stage work is what is what set him up for this. And I and I get him not wanting to test for it, thinking that he was wrong for the role. Um, but that energy of of feeling out of place, I mean, that's Benjamin Braddock anyway. And I think that he I think he inadvertently brought the right energy. And then when then getting to work with Nichols, who of course, like I said, made his bones directing Neil Simon comedies on Broadway. And when they were able to rehearse it and 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 make it feel more like a play and before they actually shot it i think dustin hoffman brought such a uniqueness and originality to it and i think at the end of the day he while he might have just been playing a version of himself it it it's it's he brings the energy of that of somebody at a crossroads in their life and just truly not knowing what the next thing is 
Well, that's kind of what I love about his performance and why I'm gushing it so much is I think he, you tend to focus to, more towards like the melancholy and the, um, you know, the malaise that he's capturing. But I find like the more I watch the movie, I'm much more into the the quirks and like the the really droll things he does to be amusing. His little like squeaks every time like something awkward is happening. I, I mean, really, anytime he's awkward, I'll, I'll call out what I call the seven double O scene because it's as far as James Bond as you can get, but it's when he's, he's in the Taft, he's called Mrs. Robinson. And it's, it's a very simple procedure. <laughs> you know, you, you ask for a hotel room, but the, the sheer nervousness and, and that Buck Henry as the, the hotel clerk becomes his nemesis by asking standard questions like, well, where's your luggage? Oh, I've got my toothbrush here. The, the there's, there's a quietness to it, but there's also like in its way, it's a very zany little routine. And I think that's another thing that just makes it one of like the comedy films instead of one of the comedy movies is there's, there's an elegant crassness to the movie with its narrative, but it's also loaded with kind of vaudevillian routines like that, that I, I think appeal to like the more highbrow, audience members who say like this is high comedy but it's still such a stupid situation that he plays very silly but that is true to character and he can still sell those moments of uh you know darkness and malaise which we'll we'll get to in a minute but i i'm I'm drawn less to those as time goes by and i really appreciate more the nervous ben and the way that dustin hoffman can quietly freak out Oh yeah, no, and it's it's I, I think, and then uh, the, the extension of that scene that I think I I I would lean to next is when they're in the room and they and they're 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 trying to get to the first time they have sex, and uh, specifically the moment of when he puts his hand on her breast and yeah. she gets enraptured in this thing that she's trying to clean off, and then and then you know the behind the scenes story is Dustin Hoffman turned and hit his head because he was afraid he was going to break. But being true to form, nobody yelled cut. And so he just, the scene kept going. And that, like, that's a, that is the kind of, of living truthfully in the moment stuff that I think another director might have called cut or changed it. But like, that is a moment of, that is one of the more memorable moments of the movie to me. And I think it's, it is so funny. And that, that is one of those moments that I think is like, I definitely laughed out loud. Yeah, most most of the stuff of that first visit to the Taft, I think, is where a lot of laughs come from. Because even lines like, are you here for an affair, sir, takes everybody so off guard. Like, my wife, Amanda, was like walking through the room when that happened, and she let out a chuckle, having no context for like any of the movies. She still thought that was a funny line. Oh, it's, um, it's hysterical. Yeah. Yeah, I, and Buck Henry. Uh, speaking of another collaborator, um, Buck Henry's screenplay is great. Iconic lines. Don't get me wrong, Mrs. Robinson. I think you're the most attractive out of all my parents' friends. I really mean that. Great line. Like, that whole exchange is amazing. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I think, um, and this will this will kind of segue into my praise for my favorite performance, which is Anne Bancroft, um, though I do agree with you. We do need another scene with her. But she's just cool, man. She's so freaking cool. And I, if if what I love about Ben is that he does, his character plays into this, He's drifting, he's unsure, he's he's putty in basically anybody's hands. He'll wear the scuba suit for his parents, he'll, you know, do whatever Mrs. Robinson tells him to. But the the way she can control him, the way she gets a bead on him and will just thread him down the path. I in the first seduction scene, it's great. The way she plays it's so cool with the taft. And the <laughs> I love when he calls her from the phone booth 
and they have to patch the call to her at the at the at the bar <laughs> when she's when she says like isn't there anything you want to tell me and he says i i really want you to know how much i appreciate this just no i need the room number <laughs> i i i just love how calm and cool she is and i'm going to ask you your favorite scene but let me tell you mine the scene after they've been having the affair for a couple of weeks, that is the the fake one shot that's broken up because the lights keep going off. But the conversation, the one where he says, "Can we say a few words to each other before we dive into bed?" And that whole scene that plays out over ten minutes, that really digs out Mrs. Robinson's past. It's amazing, and I, I, I like I mentioned, I went back. I I watched Guess Who's Coming to Dinner for the first time because I needed to see. Okay, well, here's Catherine Hepburn winning another Oscar. Let's see, like, what's the Academy see here to give her best actress? And Adam, like, I'm not, I'm not dunking on Catherine Hepburn. She has a fine job, and guess who's coming to dinner? She has some great teary-eyed, cheerworthy moments. But everything Catherine Hepburn does is kicked to the curb in this one scene from Anne Bancroft. Well, and I, and I haven't seen Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and I, I, I'm not, can't say that I'm too keen on, on watching it anytime soon. Um, it's fine. But yeah, there, there was such, <laughs> there was such an an arc to 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 Mrs. Robinson. But in th- in this scene alone, it's it's a huge arc. I mean, and we get to see some new shades of of uh, Benjamin Braddock too. I love his, uh, you know, he gets all excited because it's a Ford. He's just like, ah, God right. damn it, a Ford. <laughs> um, but uh, but no, I mean, it's so when you know when when she you know admits to being um into painting and that it didn't it didn't work out and and he's he's not piecing he's not putting these puzzle pieces together and it's just one of those like man it's and i I know in reality these actors like they were like six years apart or whatever but like you are you're seeing the incompetence of youth on display and not and 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 you're watching it versus somebody who has lived Maybe maybe a pampered life, maybe a very uh, a very respectable life, but not a fulfilling life. And and you're watching these worlds collide. You're watching somebody who doesn't know the next step, and you're watching somebody talk to a person who is who is made who made the wrong step. I and maybe wrong is the, mm-hmm. is not the correct word, but you know a, a tough step, a misstep. Yeah. If, well, and I mean, like, there's so many subtle moments in the performance because I mean, even the way like that heartbreak in her face and in her voice is yes, or what you study, and she has to eke out that word art and then as, as he keeps pushing her you know what happened if you notice she she just has like this vague line like i have my reasons but if you you look at it closely she's staring at her wedding ring when she delivers the line and it's it's just telling like the whole backstory in this one thing and and i just love like you said how that that scene is kind of bridging the the generation gap that these two are kind of mere images of each other that you know mrs robinson's not so far off that i love all these things they mentioned that he says like you did it in his car and she says well i don't think we were the first like this isn't just a your generation thing this has been something young people have been doing for forever and and ben even has this kind of line that he trails off on where he says well i never thought of you and mr robinson as the kind of people who would and he, he has to like grapple with this like they were once like me, like th- maybe this is this vicious cycle. And I, I just love the way that's coming back together. And to, to maybe get ahead of myself and talk about like places where the movie does lose me, where I find it problematic. And I'll, I want your take on this. 
I think this movie makes a gigantic misstep in the third act by making Mrs. Robinson the out-and-out villain. <sighs> yeah, it's, well, it's, it's interesting, and, and, and I'll, you know, I'll be the one to say, uh, I'll say the tough word, the fact that, that, that she tells Elaine that he raped her is, mm-hmm. um, I, I, I forgot that that was part of the plot when I was, when I was rewatching it. And mm-hmm. it really, it, 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 I, I was, I was, I was shooken. I was, I didn't, I forgot that that happened. And, um, it's, it's interesting because I, and I, I understand this idea of her being seen as a villain, but then I, I took a step back and I was like, she made it very clear early on to not date her daughter. Now, mm-hmm. do I think that telling her daughter that, that he raped her is a good choice? No, I don't. But it's one of those things where it's, it's such a, it's, I, I don't know how else to say, I'll just, I'll just say it. It's a retaliatory thing that I completely understand. I do. I, mm-hmm. I think it's like the rules have been broken. You violated the trust. I am now going to, I'm going to make your life hell. And this is what I'm going to do. It, I, I, told, I, I even agree with what you're saying. Like, I, I do see it. I'm not saying it's breaking character. It's to me that after gushing about this, let's have a conversation scene and the final vulnerability we get that Mrs. Robinson is not just, oh, the hot cougar. She's not just this plot device. She's this living, breathing person who is like the standout performance in the movie. All this stuff in the third act just is a betrayal of that to me because it just turns her into this scheming, conniving villain. Somebody who in this sequence earlier has lamented like shotgun wedding, like my future was derailed because I got pushed into the the same system. I had to get married. I had to have a family. I had to support my husband and his career and all this. And then for her to be doing the same thing to her daughter, to push her into this marriage with Johnny. Oh my gosh. What is, is Carl the name of Carl's fiance? Yes. yes. Carl Smith. From the moment you meet him. Yeah. Carl Smith, who from the moment you meet him with his tweed jacket and honest to goodness pipe clanging between his teeth, like he's Bing freaking Crosby. You know, to have Mrs. Robinson forcing her daughter into this marriage and to be conniving that when Ben, you know, appears in, at the glass and is pounding and shouting Elaine. And, and I'll still admit, like, she keeps her cool that she, you know, Mr. Robinson's freaking out and she just, he's too late, it's fine. But then, you know, at the, at the last thing we see about her is she's beating the shit out of her daughter for running away. And it's like, where? Uh, I, I admire, I admire the, the wild energy of that finale. And I'll talk about it more in a minute. But again, you have this trajectory of this, you start out of this woman who's a plot device, the, the hot older woman who's going to sleep with our hero. You flesh her out into this character. You give her this great scene to make her a human being. And you're going you're gonna to make that the last thing we see her doing. It's a betrayal to me. And I have such a hard time with it. And Anne Brinkhoff still brings it. But to me, her last great moment is goodbye, Benjamin. After... Elaine has found out and it's that zoom shot of her drenched and soaking and looking pathetic in a white empty hallway backed into the corner and then we leave her but we still have a half an hour of movie left and it's like how could you stab the heart of your movie that badly that's 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 interesting I mean I agree that the slap 
I, I I think the slap is is a, is a huge is a huge choice, and um, it's it's funny. I mean, and I I I don't I can't justify it, you know, and 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 it's it happened, and I and I certainly see how that like, you know, what what a tough you know somebody who's been so whether she was forced into the role or not, so supportive of her her husband and her daughter, um, to slap her is, is a huge choice, but it it's interesting, and I. I feel like when people are pushed into a corner, they, they make some really iffy decisions. And we obviously in life, we avoid situations where tensions get raised and like, nope, we don't seek out yelling fights or getting slapped or anything like that. Um, so I, I, it's, I think the chaoticness maybe just got the best of everybody, but I'm also trying to put that on top of it because I, I don't, I don't know specifically. Um, you you mentioned that scene where uh it, it comes to fruition that uh Elaine now knows who the older woman was that that Ben was having the affair with you have got to talk about the the shot the mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so he when he runs in and he's like we got to run we got to go we got to go and then he he turns her away from the door and he says remember the woman the older woman and she's like oh yeah and when when Mrs. Robinson her, when her face comes into the, the frame of the door and they rack focus to her and he just glances up and Elaine turns around and sees her and turns back and the focus is still on Mrs. Robinson and then she leaves. And even though she's left, the camera focus is still on that empty spot and that slow focus back to Elaine is, it's, I mean, chef's kiss. It is amazing. It's amazing. And like, again, it's one of those choices that's like, I don't know where they got it from. They could have shot that so differently, but the choice to leave the focus on that empty space is just stellar, stellar. And I do not know, I, of all of the nominations that this film got, it did not get one for editing. And it just like, it's not why. It's nuts. No, it's abs- it's absolutely crazy. And and I I have beef with the cinematography one. And Bonnie and Clyde is a well shot movie, and I I see why Academy voters go for it. It's very, it has you know we want to talk about conflicting styles. At one point, it's shot you know through a window to give it that feel of an old timey photograph, and the next it's edited like a Sam Peckinpah movie. Um, so you know I, I get it, but then it, you know just again fifty years of hindsight, you look at all the cinematography on display in The Graduate, and it's like how how did you pass this up it it's still because again it's banger after banger there's there's 10 other shots like it um if you're cool i want to pivot to narrative here i think we can use this talk we we both have points here about universality um which i think is tied to the to the story specifically so let's talk about this what do you feel about the movie makes it universal well okay so I, I definitely thought, I thought a lot about this and I, I, you know, whether it's graduating from high school or graduating from college or uh, uh, moving across the country or, or, or a birth or a death, you know, what, what it means to come to a fork in the road, what it, what, it, you know, something, uh, a, a time of your life has ended and now what decision has to be made. And, you know, I, I, I don't feel like I ever, I, I it it I think this movie is hitting at a really interesting time for me because 
you know, when I graduated from high school, I know I, I knew I was going to college. And when I graduated from college, I had I had set plans. Like I I knew things I wanted to do. And then when I graduated from grad school, my 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 youngest or my uh, my oldest daughter was born two weeks after I got my my master's. So like I it's like I already know what the next thing. I have a family. We're moving back to Seattle. But I'm I'm coming to a really interesting point right now in my career where it's like I'm coming to that fork in the road moment. And so having to address the realities of what's the next step, what are you going to do? That that's universal. We we all have to deal with the next big thing in our life. Now, the thing that made me stop a little more and think this time was isn't it isn't it nice that Ben this 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 white guy of a very affluent family has the time to do this because right. the truth of the matter is that when these forks in the road come you have days maybe hours sometimes right. to to make that decision and so it was interesting and i i i almost think that one of the one of the negatives of the movie is is just this idea that like when you get done with college you just get you just get to have months to go gee what am i going to do because <laughs> right, right. if 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 my experience has been anything it's like no you just get right back to it you just get to the next thing and so i, I and i and i in a way i think that I'm, maybe this is the way I'm trying to work through it. I, I think it also builds to the comedy a little bit that this guy who ultimately probably has a job in store if he wanted it is so, as he says, concerned about his future, but the concerns, it, I love that we never really know. Like we don't really ever know what those concerns are. And it's, it's just so interesting to, to see this, this, this guy who, who for all intents and purposes has his life set before him if he wishes to. And it's like, I don't know what to do next. Right. Well, and I mean, you basically made my point for me that this dilemma, so I don't, I don't need to double down on that, but I, I, I'm in agreement with you in that, you know, okay, this is a, this is a heck of a problem to have. We should all be so lucky. Um, I, I did grapple with that before I put this label of universality to this dilemma, though, because I do think, like, regardless of your economic status and social station, like, that very dilemma you laid out is very real for everybody. Um, I, I think I initially grapt, grappled onto the movie because I was almost, like, roadmapped onto it when I first saw it because I was, I was about a month away from graduating high school when I saw this. So I'm, I'm like, right there and i didn't have this great game plan and I, you know I, I vaguely knew you know the roadmap i'm gonna go to college what am i gonna do oh, i'm not sure yet but i got some time to figure it out and so i you know i think you know i can imprint on the movie fairly easy because of that but yeah the um we'll, we'll talk more about this but i i am with you in that one of the things that you know on this roller coaster i go on with the movie when i get on a downslope that's one of them is like wow it must be really hard to you know, always have this super nice Beverly Hills home with a pool you can plop back down to that you always have plenty of food, you got a roof over your head, but your big problem is like, you don't know what to do with your future. And it's, it's not to say like, people in that situation can't have that kind of internal struggle and malaise, because I do think that's also a part of the universal appeal is that even if you are strong armed into, you know, you got to make this decision in a couple of hours like that, 
that hesitation of like, well, am I making the right decision that if that time crunch was not on, would you take, you know, the days, the weeks, the months? I, I think a lot of us actually would were it an option for us. Um, it's it, again, it's so interesting to me that I think the movie does still speak to people, even though, like you said, the big dilemma is like, oh, boo hoo for you. And you have this gorgeous woman down the street that wants to jump into bed with you and you can just whittle your way doing that and swimming at the pool. Like, what, how hard must it be to be Benjamin Braddock? But um, I, I think Dustin Hoffman has like enough speeches to pull it off. I like the one he's, you know, once he's on the date with Elaine and says like, it's, it's like I'm trying to play this game, but the, they keep changing the rules or there are no rules or being made up arbitrarily. And I think we're in situations like that sometimes where we just feel like, how do you win? I, you know, I, I, I teach at a college right now and it's like every quarter they just that like, OK, winter quarter, uh, the first week's going to be Zoom because of the pandemic. But then no, no worries. Second week, we're coming back. The second week starts. Oh, I, I, just kidding. Uh, we're going to go back two more weeks on Zoom. And it's like, are you, can you just make a decision? Mm -hmm. And I get mm -hmm. that, that like <laughs> the world is doing what it's doing. But it's like, how do you, like, I, I would go and tell my students, like, I'm sorry we're not making more progress in class because I'm trying to teach you an acting class and doing this over Zoom is damn near impossible. Mm -hmm. And so, so yeah. Feeling like the world is like constantly changing the rules on you is is a real thing that we are all experiencing. But and I I agree that that's that is part of what um makes that character unique. And I think that is a good scene that he has with Elaine. And and another thing that kind of just came to me, even though there not everybody can relate to like the college experience or even the opportunity Benjamin had. I I think this. Uh, his his college years is like this metaphor of like the betrayal of um the easy answers that you know to me that first party scene uh, again beautifully shot handheld camera whirling around being passed from dinner guest to dinner guest um you know and you're getting this like laundry list of accolades and his mom is reading the yearbook to her friends and it always kills me in that scene that there isn't there isn't anybody at this party that's benjamin's age there's no neighborhood kids he grew up it, it is all He's on display in a monkey suit for his parents' friends. But anyway, th this metaphor of like all these accomplishments, he's got, he's captain of the track team, he's head of the debate club, he edits the newspaper. And, and to me, I, the, the vagueness of the movie in a lot of areas, and we'll bring this back to the closing shot as we close out the conversation in a bit, it is the saving grace because the way I interpret this is not this like neener, neener, look how privileged this kid is, although that does come into play. Um, but it's more like, He's been looking for these answers. You know, you're always told, like, go out, achieve, you find success. And so that, that's a hell of a resume. So, you know, that, that is a lot of plates to keep spinning to be on the track team, the debate club, the newspaper, you know, whatever else he's on. And to me, that signals a kid who's desperately looking for answers, who's trying out everything he can to find the thing that's going to click. And after four years, he comes back with the accolades and zero experience. It's, it is all betrayed him and he's got no answers here and the solution that keeps getting pitched to him is you can go to graduate school or you can go into plastics and and how hollow those two suggestions are i think still rings true and I, let's talk buck henry and let's talk great directing and performing the word plastics 
is an iconic movie line. It's renowned the world over. That's that is one word, and yet that's that's sta- that word stands for so much, and speaks not only to the generation of young people who made this movie a top grosser in 1967, but I think gives the movie life lifeblood. That that speech, the one word, just one word, that's still a joke that makes people laugh, and it's still something that connects with everybody. They get that is more than just a joke that he's laying out. Oh yeah, yeah for sure. Um. You know, you were talking about the, the, you know, all the accolades that, that Ben has and, and not, none of them really leading them, leading him to any solid choice. And I think that also, uh, you know, part of what I was thinking about is that I think Ben thinks that if he just, if something clicked, that there would be that the, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I think he's mm-hmm. looking for, oh, if I make that one right choice, everything's set. And I think that plays back into, I mean, the end of the movie is that idea mm-hmm. personified. He, mm-hmm. he's sitting next to her and it's like, ah, yes, I, I got her. She didn't marry the guy or she did, but you know, whatever. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, um, but like, and I, and I know, and I know this, yes, the, the actual practical story behind it where, um, uh, was it, was it Bob Surtees who was, who was shooting that day on the bus and he forgot to yell cut. And so Dustin Hoffman and Catherine Ross just sat there, yada, yada, yada. But like, I don't, I don't care. Cause in the way that the story is played, it is clear that this is just one more thing that Benjamin is, tr- is trying for that is not going to lead him to the answer that he wants. Okay. Let me take this. Cause this was my third point. It's a cinema. The, the problematic elements of the movie, they make this study on how the, the progressive rebellion of the past inevitably becomes the outdated traditions. So, so let's talk, let's rewind to the, the assaults on the, the church and the wedding, which is, it turns into a, a full on Monty Python could not have done a, a more ridiculous castle siege than this. You know, we, we talked about it. Mrs. Robinson is slapping her daughter like crazy. Ben is holding off the hordes with the cross. Mr. Robinson and he are getting into a fist fight. It, it is absolute bedlam. And and this to me, like this is a scene that I can imagine being there in 67. And you're you're a young person. You're a baby. You're a baby boomer. This this is your generation standing up to the strict religious traditions and, you know, the, the status quo. You're literally going to use the cross to hold off the Carl Smiths of the world. And you're going to run away with the, the married woman. You didn't catch her at the airport at just the right time she is married you're stealing her away and to me it's such this iconoclastic moment yet we're following the hollywood rom-com formula he's pining he's looking for meaning he's looking like you said the one thing that's going to click and he overtly says it's elaine she's the first person he can talk to you that he can stand. She's the first thing in forever that makes sense, which leads him to make ridiculous decisions in the third act I want to talk about in a minute. But it's it's this. I'm going to get the girl. I get the girl at the last minute. We run away together. But then the last shot, and um, there, there's two stories here. There's the version you said that someone forgets to tell cut, and the version I've heard is that Nichols, because they have the bus and they have to close down the streets, they don't have a lot of time to do retakes. So he's put the fear of God into Dustin Hoffman and Catherine Ross, like, you got to get this right. And they're first time performers, so they're scared out of their minds. So they're, the story I've heard is their faces are like, they're told, they're directed, they're supposed to be laughing because they did it. Love has won the day. But Mike Nichols has so frightened them with like, you've got to get this right because we don't have the time to reshoot it. 
that what we see playing out on their face is actually their nervousness as performers because they can't keep smiling. They're so afraid because of what Mike Nichols has yelled at them. But, um, and this will go back to Sound of Silence. We open the movie and Ben is on a conveyor belt of life on a white backdrop and the Sound of Silence lyrics are laying out the isolation, the prophetic vision, the one guy who sees it all but is powerless to stop it. And that's what we close on on a conveyor belt, a bus full of old people riding off into the middle of Bodunk nowhere in California someplace, doing the exact same thing that we know from Mrs. Robinson's story the generation before them did. The, the crazy, brash rebellion at the church has already morphed into this, you just found another way to keep the status quo going. And it's brilliant to me. That's, that last shot is a saving grace of so many problems I have with the third act of this movie. I mean, it's, it's, a, nice, it's a nice spoonful of truth at, at the end. And just knowing that, like, you're never, you are never just going to have the answer given to you. You are never going to just open a door and bang, all of your problems are solved. And I think... And maybe it plays into the the affluent nature of maybe his upbringing that maybe he was just used to to having, uh, you know, everything that he needed or wanted. And so this idea of being out of college now and and maybe maybe he actually learned a thing or two. And it's like, well, this rebelling against his his lifestyle, rebelling against his family. And maybe this person is the answer. But I, I, I think he's I think he's. And I think that's part of why I like the performances. He's just so damn confused that he's just, he's like so gung ho for whatever is there at the moment that he, that that's, you know, college is done. That distracted him for three years. And then the summer, over the summer, he had Mrs. Robinson and now that's coming to a head. And so now it's Elaine and it's the, he's there and, you know, it's, I, and I love, I love an ending like this where, you just get to fulfill your own story. Like, you know, whether or not they stay together or they don't, or, you know, how long the life is, it doesn't, it, it really doesn't matter because you know that whatever happens deep down, it's still not the right thing for him. So a question about, you know, we, we had opened the spoiler conversation with like, let's talk about how the movie dates. 1967. I mean, I mean, Benjamin Braddock is a countercultural hero. He, and I think, again, this speaks to the universality of the story even today. He's the kid who wants his future to be different. Whether that come, And usually that comes in the form of rebellion. That's, that's the thing of youth. I want it to be different. I'll fight the system if I have to. I'm curious, as, as you get older and you experience this movie outside of you know, the age group where you identify more closely to Ben, do you still find him to be the hero of the movie? Do you still side with him? Oh, uh... Oh, that's that's great. N- no, he's not a hero. Uh, uh, he's he's an everyman. He's an everyman who, it. I I think it's almost like a uh, he's a um. Uh, it, it's like a it's a it's a it's a morality tale. It's it's like wow, you see this person, you see him. Don't be like him. I I actually don't. I don't <laughs> think he's a hero at all. I get I get how he was rebelling against the society and how that might've been to people seeing it in 1967. But when I look at him now, it's just like, it, it's, and it's, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to say it's an age thing. Cause I know that he's meant to play 21 and that, and that he's, he's just coming out of college and all those things. But I, I look at the person and the decision-making and it's just, 
it's just it's just well, this person who was so unhappy with the decisions that he's making and it's just it's it's trying to 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 like make better cho- like look at this person and don't do what they did right mm-hmm. you can't because because you're never just gonna have that thing it, that there, there's nothing there and so i i actually think that he's uh, a forbidden tale like like if you don't do what he does you know it's something i would tell my kids like let's watch this movie <laughs> and uh let's just just know that he's going to make a lot of really not good decisions over the course of the movie. And what can we, how can we learn from this? Yeah, that's, that's a good take as a cautionary tale. I, it, it, it's, and this is the roller coaster I've been on. Cause again, I saw this movie the first time I'm, I'm almost out of high school. So for me, it's like, yeah, future will be different. And this is cool. And maybe I also want to pool in the backyard too. Maybe I'm a little jealous, but, um, yeah, I, so I, I know you're a fan of Roger Ebert. I think we talk about Roger Ebert every time you and I get together on mic. He, I, have, have you seen Roger Ebert's trajectory with this movie? Are you familiar with this? Uh, no, I don't think so. It's a fun little critical story. So Roger Ebert's first year in the game of film criticism is 1967. And Roger Ebert made his bones championing two movies. The big one is Bonnie and Clyde. The other one is The Graduate. He's one of the first critical voices to come out and say, these are new American masterpieces. And he's kind of in the minority camp at first. They pick up steam and history kind of vindicates him. That's like how he got his start. That's how he became Roger Ebert. For the 30th anniversary of The Graduate's release, he re-reviewed it. And he kind of panned it. And he really turned back on it and said it doesn't hold up at all. And he made this kind of statement that if you can't tell from my diatribe about Mrs. Robinson earlier, I kind of agree with. He says... In 67, we were all on Ben's side. And he's terrible. And he says, the hero of this movie is Mrs. Robinson. He says, she's the only one that as you grow older, you can look at and say, this is a human being. And again, that's why I have such a problem with everything after that goodbye Benjamin line, because it's like, I want that to be true so fiercely, but you can't totally side with the woman who lies about being raped and who slaps the crap out of her daughter to keep her from running away from her wedding. Um, so it, it's interesting to me to, to talk to people and say, like, as you age with the movie, how does, does the movie change for you? And, and basically, I, I still have a lot of sympathy for Benjamin, it's even, you know, all up into like the the date he goes on with Elaine and how adorable it is that they get the burgers and as he's dropping her off at the door and they're sharing the fries out of the bag. It's super adorable. It is everything after the goodbye Benjamin thing, because then we start going into that zany trope of the romantic comedy where it's like love makes you act like an insane person. And in a lot of rom-coms, I find that that works. We have a great, we have a show on Amelie I'm very proud of about, you know, everything Amelie does is borderline. I think I called it like borderline sociopathic behavior, but it's so cute. I can't get on board with the third act of this where Benjamin says, I'm going to marry Elaine Robinson and she doesn't know yet. I'm going to go to Berkeley and stalk. And there's a lot of funny moments in there. I really like the line where He's, she says, are you enrolled as a student? He says, well, no, I've been sitting in on classes and they don't seem to mind. They've been very congenial about it. But all this stuff and then him just strong arming her. And, and I, the worst scene of the movie to me is when she shows up in his place in the middle of the night after she's chewed him out. She comes back to him. He proposes to her through a yawn and they make up. It, it's a tonal shift that I actually do think is a bit too much because it seems to be following this formula of like, we want the young people to be together. We want them to stand up to the older generation and make something different. It's saved by the last five minutes, I think barely, but even 
I just have a hard time with the way Benjamin gets coded as super cool and specifically for being the guy with the quote unquote sight. If we're, if we're going to look at the lyrics of sound of silence about the, the loner who, who sees, who screams against the void and the people hypnotized by the neon lights that he can't reach. It, he's not that cool. Yeah. He's got a red sports car, but he's, he's constantly making fun of Carl, you know, as he's hassling her in the library, like how did he propose? He didn't get on his knees. Oh no. He said that. And I'm like, who the freak are you? Like, you're so much cooler and better than this guy that did the traditional, like, everything from this Berkeley thing just drives me nuts because I'm just like, who the hell is this guy who thinks he's got the vision and the sight? And even at the end of the wedding where she calls out to him to save her with, again, a, a good shot of all the people saying harsh words through gritted teeth and the sound is sucked out. It's a nice moment, but this, that cry she does out to him as, as the princess in the dragon's tower and he must save her. I'm just like, (laughs) because I can't be on Ben's side after goodbye, Benjamin. I can't anymore. Well, I, I, for, for the record, will say I, I never thought that Ben was cool. Um, I I think that he's 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 lucky and and you're right when he when he goes up to Berkeley I mean this is just he's just being a stalker and I and I wrote that down <laughs> I mean I I yeah. like is is this love or is this obsession and I think this is just this is the this is the thing that he is focused on now he's just floating in the wind and he's going from one thing to the next and like I, I'm, I'm a little surprised we didn't see a scene where he's like working on the car as just a means of distraction, as a means of something to do. Not even because he likes to work on cars, but just like I, I, I'm curious. You know, part of me just is curious to know. Like I know we only see him basically with Mrs. Robinson or in the pool, but like in those, what are those other things that he's doing? Because I feel like it's just it's all indicative of like the few things that we know about him. He has the car. He likes to be in the pool he likes to have sex with Mrs. Robinson. Like I just, right. And, and that was Ebert's thing in this like re-release review is he, he's like, Ben's a loser. Like, look at everything he does in the movies. And, and, you know, you have sympathy for him. He has these lines, like my whole life is a waste and he's showing like sorrow for that. But at the same time, it's like, okay, this, like, because you met Elaine Robinson, doesn't mean you all of a sudden get to go back on your word and, be making fun of everybody who's still like in the status quo. Cause I think that's how Ben got a pass in 67 was he, he was an agitator as, as Norman fell says, I don't like outside agitators. And that's, I think, you know what audiences loved cause they audiences at the time were just pissed. It wasn't about Vietnam. Like all, all these contemporary references. They're like, well, where's that? Where's like that rebellion. And so I think that they were latching on to like, well, at least, at least he's throwing a, a wrench into the gears here. But now it's just like, but what is he accomplishing? Like, he's he's a bumbling buffoon, and it's amusing to watch him. I love the performance, but he doesn't earn this, like, iconoclastic anti-hero status that I think he had at the time the movie was released. Well, and, and you, you, that, that you, it's so funny. You mentioned the, you know, my whole life has been a waste. It, it, it's something that I... Because I, I, you know, I, I, I'm all of 35, but I, I teach at a college. I teach 20 and 21-year-olds, and If one of if I was to hear that something like that from one of my students, I would hold back a laugh and then go, you haven't even you haven't even lived your life yet. And so and that's why, like, I I don't know whether or not it's sympathetic, but like it's it's also it's like that line to me is ridiculous. You haven't done anything yet. It's great. 
you went to school. Good, good for you. But like now do something else, do something important or don't, or get a job and just, and just do anything. But like, it's this wishy-washiness that I think is what makes him kind of unsympathetic in a way. And like, I think that's why the cautionary tale thing is kind of floating around because like, you know, the, the more that you get stagnant with, with choices like this, the, the, the harder it's going to be to move on. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, that's, that's just kind of like my lead balloon in the third act that, and I'm still cinemusting the movie. I do love the movie. And, and the thing is, is like, this is a narrative problem I have, but I, I think the craft is what's pulling everything through. Cause even in this section that I've got just all, I've just spent five minutes laying out all this beef. The directing is still top notch. The production design, the costume design, the editing is great. The music is coming through. The performances are still amazing. I, I love Murray Hamilton cornering him in the room and just the ridiculous lines. He says, don't shout at me, Ben. I, I've, I've been here quite a while. I can see in the dark quite well. It's, it's a great little section. So the, the craft of the movie will always pull it through, but it's, um, I think those are sections that maybe question this universality of a, a little bit, but I think the movie's still entertaining. It's still well-made start to finish. And I, I still, again, I'm still riding fairly high on the movie on this watch. And I personally, this is not a, a top 20 of all time for me, but it's one of those ones that it's like, I think I get it. I at least see why this gets on that list that high. Yeah, I agree. I agree. The craft behind it. It's amazing. Um, what, any final words we'd like to say about this? Have you feel like you've been able to make your points adequately? I, I mean, yeah, I just, I, uh, the, I just, just, just to repeat, because I think it's, I, I don't think I've seen a movie in a long time where actors were allowed to act in very long takes and show that they have a skill as an actor to to do this, like to do. And then and then on the flip side, to see the the she, the the editing, the cinematography, the production, all of it shine in another way. I just thought that the blending of worlds was like pitch perfect on this film. Let me ask you one last flippant question as, as a, you know, I'm, I'm really ex- always excited to have you on to talk about movies that are acting heavy as a, as a consummate professional. Is, is there a dud in the cast? Do you feel there's anybody that actually missteps with their performance? Um, I, I mean, there might be a, a smaller role maybe down the line. Um, but, uh, but no, I think everybody, cause it is at times it feels like heightened comedy, you know, like a comedy of wits at moments. Um, Mm-hmm. So like there there are times where I feel like Ben's parents are like are a bit much, but then but I also but it also fits the world. I mean, and you know, shout out to William Daniels, aka Mr. Feeney from Boy Meets World. Um, but uh no, I I I think it, it's a different style, but I also think it's intentional. So I I don't think there's a misstep. Yeah, I don't either. And even in bare parts like that, I'm glad you called out William Daniels because he's he's one of the ones I find that speech he has in the middle. It's like the older I get, I'm like, I feel a little dirty. I'm betraying like the youthful spirit of the movie. But when he gives him that whole thing about like, you've done good work, I think a young man is entitled to take take a few weeks and bask in his achievements. But I would think after a while, you'd think about doing something and get off your ass. And I'm like, yep. great dad speech, honestly, <laughs> great dad speech. And I love that the movie gives his mom the scene in the the steamy bathroom as he's shaving to kind of have a moment of connectivity. And, and even more so that that is the scene that leads directly into the Mrs. Robinson, do you think we can talk first? 
following the scene where he is openly not talking to his own mother. There's, there's some richness there. I, I bring it up just because to my admittedly much less trained eye from an acting perspective, I don't think there's a single dud. I think even the sweet old lady at the Taft, the, good evening, Mr. Braniff. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's great. great. That's great. Yeah. Buck Buck Henry, the screenwriter, great as the hotel clerk nemesis. I, I think I'd end on that note. I, I love the graduate. I've got beef with the graduate, but um, this was this was a great pick, man, and and a great person to talk through it. I was scared witless to go into it, and I actually feel like we have gone to some good depths here. I don't feel particularly let down, or that we've really left anything big on the table. I would agree. Yeah. except for to call attention i do have this on my notes how great is the joke that when he gets up to the hotel room he actually did have the toothbrush oh my god i that's true <laughs> i i thought that was i thought that was really funny that he and that he uses it he uses it too that's great that's fantastic a, that's that's what i'm saying i i think the movie it, it is borderline hilarious to me. I'm always laughing way more than I thought. So um, bef- before we close out, dude, nothing nothing quite closes out a conversation to make some thematic connections with a double feature recommendation, which admittedly, this was a bit of a tough one for me. So I'm going to kick it over to you first. In a, in a movie night, you've got The Graduate on. It's an hour 47 minutes. It's a pretty quick watch. You got time to throw another movie in there with a double feature. What are you going to pair up with The Graduate? Um, so I, I decided to stick within the world of Mike Nichols and, uh, relationships. Now, uh, admittedly, I would say watch the movie. I'm going to say first, I, I wouldn't end with this one. Um, but I am, uh, recommending his, uh, I believe it's from 2004, another, st- uh, uh, another stage adaptation, which he was familiar with, with who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. And I'm, uh, I'm recommending closer as a double feature. Um, nice. I haven't seen this one. I have admittedly this movie is is severely near to me. Um I I directed this in college. I was in it about 6 or 7 years ago. Um uh it's a play that I, I it's it's an act it's kind of one of those actors wet dream things because it's just meaty and chewy and it's just angsty like it's just great characters to work on. Um and basically I mean the it, it's it's Julia Roberts, Natalie Portman, Clive Owen, and um, Jude Law, and they, it's in England, and they basically, you know, they're, some people are in relationships, and they fall out, and they cheat, and they get back together. Um, it's not really f- funny. Um, there may be some chuckles in there, but I think uh, as an ensemble piece, it's phenomenal, and I, I, it's another chance. It's another great uh, letting the camera roll and watching actors act, but then also him getting to show off some, some cool technical stuff as a director. Cool. And, and I know he was still bringing it fairly late in his career. I know a lot of people have high praise for this. I haven't seen it since it came out, but I remember being a big fan of Charlie Wilson's war with um, Tom Hanks and uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. And I, I remember being struck by that time, like this is 40 years after the graduate and this guy's still making movies like this. And that is pretty damn impressive. My my almost recommend was um but but I I couldn't do it was his um his mini series of Angels in America that they did on HBO but that's like over six hours so I I couldn't actually do it but uh yeah and it has been a double feature recommendation on the show before Peterson oh, recommended it on our Philadelphia episode he cheated there a little and uh, I let him run with it so yeah Mike Nichols has shown up a couple times in the double feature recs nice so closer I gotta I'll have to check this out because one of the things watching the graduate and looking at his IMDb profile I'm like I sev- I've severely 
underseen Mike Nichols filmography. I haven't even seen The Birdcage because I'm holding out to watch the original one and never make the time for it. So I, I really want to do a dive on Mike Nichols filmography again. And I sounds like I need to maybe work my way up to this one. Yeah. Cool. I'm uh I'm gonna go outside of that. I'm going for my double feature with a, a more recent movie, but one I think is thematically linked, and that is Edgar Wright's Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Have you seen Scott Pilgrim, Adam? I I saw it when it came out, not not in theaters, but uh, I rented it or something, and I wasn't a fan. And then I watched it maybe th- I don't know, three four years ago before the pandemic, and was like. This movie is just a lot of fun. It was, it's a great watch. <laughs> it is. I, I was drawn to it as a double feature, mainly on thematic links, that it is also a story about a young person kind of drifting through life full of malaise and not sure what to do and kind of subsiding on this diet of band practice and video games. Um, and and the, the central plot is he too meets the girl of his dreams and feels he will find self-realization and pursuing her but the it's a very highly stylized movie being edgar wright it's it's all over the place and so tonal shifts abound here too um but she has seven evil ex-boyfriends and he must defeat them one after another in battle so the movie is this string of you know these fights he has to have with the seven evil exes all the while you know having these things of saying like you're pursuing this girl as a means of self-realization but have you stopped to consider maybe you're the problem um, music playing a big part of that. It's it's quirky. It's all over the place. I think it's funny and wild all the way through. Um, and so and so I feel like I actually maybe would do graduate first to go chronological because I think you could maybe even see a, a couple of influences from those things even on something that is as loud and bombastic as Scott Pilgrim versus the World. And just to shout, I mean, for if anybody hasn't watched it. They're going to see so many familiar faces that it's like, oh, yeah, of course they're in it. But people have got hopefully realized that basically that entire cast were unknowns at that point. Right, right. Like this Edgar Wright lucked out hard with this cast. He really did. Yeah, it's it's a movie I I think I with you. I I did like it the first time I saw it, but it's a movie that like continues to build up a big fan following. Um, I would make the case for kind of talk uh hitting on similar universal themes as the graduate the uncertainty about the future the uh the motivation to quit whining and get going in in a much more wild rock and roll kind of package but uh that's what i'm sticking with it unorthodox choice but scott pilgrim versus the world is my pick that sounds great Okay, well, great. And that's going to lead us um, on this Thursday, maybe my favorite day of the week, because on our Twitter and Instagram pages, we're going to throw it out to the audience to tell us what they'd put into a double feature with The Graduate. I have a heck of a watch list building up from all of these wrecks, so I'm excited to see what everybody puts in there. And let's just roll out with that, because Thursday is going to be you guys giving us double feature recommendations. Friday is the big one. That is where you are going to vote in the polls to decide if The Graduate will become a cinemust, as Adam and I feel it should, or if we are maybe a little too overhyped on it and it falls into one of the other categories. So again, if you guys are not following us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, search for us. We're at Cinemusts. This Friday is when that poll is going out. We need your votes to decide if The Graduate is going to make the list of essential cinema. 
And with that, Adam, I'm going to thank you one more time for not only picking a great movie, but for being a great co-host to walk me through it of the movies from that list that had mortified me. I think I feel best about this one at show's closing. So you did a heck of a job. Uh, uh, thank, thank you for having me. And uh, it, it was, like I said, uh, kind of at the beginning, it was nice to pick. It was nice to pick a heady movie. It was nice to feel that... that um, that unsureness, that Ben Braddock feeling about walking into this podcast because um, uh, it, it's a tough, it's a big movie. It's a big, iconic movie with a lot to talk about. And uh, whether or not we delve through it all, we certainly gave it the old college try. Hey, oh yeah, we did. Um, so before I ask you to join me on this bus ride full of old people into the sunset, one more time, you're running a bunch of excellent podcasts. Can you list them off for us one more time and where we can find them? Sure. Uh, uh, Below Freezing and uh, I guess old episodes of 1001 by 1 are on our Below Freezing feed. You can find us in all the places where you listen to podcasts and uh, up to date. Uh, Rewind 2552. Uh, you can find again at all the places you find podcasts. We're on uh, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, mostly Twitter um, at Rewind 2552 and Below Freezing Bad Film Podcast, I think is what we are there. Excellent. A, a plethora of Adam St. John out there in the movie podcasting world and all of it extremely worthwhile, no matter the quality of the film. So I cannot recommend you guys check it out enough. Um, Adam, thank you so much. Are there any final words you'd like to say? I'm going to say goodbye to darkness, not hello. Saying goodbye to darkness. Goodbye to darkness.